With your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costello. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, and science advisor, Matt Moniz. And we are here to talk about the paranormal as we are each and every Saturday night. We want to say welcome to all the... Listeners who joined us for the first time last week when we were on at our special 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. What was it, 5 to 7? Is that what we did? I don't remember. It was a week ago. I already don't remember. But uh, we had a great time talking about the Bridgewater Triangle. So if you you missed the show because you were listening at the regular time and the Red Sox were on instead, then just go back and check out the archives that need to be updated at uh, (coughs) SpookySouthCoast.com. That's uh, that's in your direction, Matt. The uh, archives at SpookySouthCoast.com. Yeah, about that. But we do have, uh, it is up on iTunes and everywhere that you can get podcasts, as well as the video is available from Spooky TV at Ustream, so you're able to get it all those ways. So there's that. (laughs) But uh, tonight we're going to shift gears and we're actually going to talk about something that, uh, a subject we kind of shy away from a little bit here uh, in the last few years of the show, and that's these paranormal reality shows. When we talk about these shows, it always generates a lot of controversy because there are those who think that they're total crap, and there are those who, um, I don't want to say swear by them, but I'll say that they have become enamored with them, that they have uh, become friendly with the people involved in the shows through social media and through these different events where you can go out and and meet the quote-unquote paracelebs. And so they do have their staunch automatic defenders. And what we actually find happens, and uh, I don't want to step all over our guest, Toast Kirby Robinson, who will be joining us in just a second, but in case it does happen, in case we get the backlash of pro-paranormal state fans out there that are going to call in, what, what ends up happening is people who are not, quote-unquote, in the paranormal field are fans of the program. Not our program, paranormal state, I mean. And what ends up happening is... You know they'll they'll get involved in the paranormal discussion about the show. So when we want to come on here and talk about, you know, the legitimacy of it as a paranormal investigation reality TV show, you're going to get the Ryan Buell fans who just think that he's dreamy, who are going to come on and try to argue for him. But they're arguing for him as a celebrity and as a television personality and not as a paranormal investigator. So. We know that it happens, and that's why we tend to shy away from it. But we couldn't shy away from Kirby Robinson's new book, Paranormal Reality, Investigating Paranormal State, because, well, he makes a really good argument. Kirby Robinson has been involved in the paranormal field for over 25 years. He was raised in the Midwest, and as a child, he had encounters with ghosts and demons that impacted his life. Much of his time is spent helping people deal with demonic hauntings. He has performed numerous house blessings and exorcisms, and he's actually currently at work on his next book about demonology and the right of exorcism. But he joins us now to talk about paranormal reality, investigating paranormal state. Uh, good evening, Kirby. Thank you for joining us on Spooky South Coast. How are you doing tonight? Uh, very well. Uh, how can I follow up that introduction? Well, the way we see it is, we, you know, we kind of got to put that caveat out there because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we 
when people are going to start calling up and saying, well, you can't bash Ryan. Ryan knows everything. I think, you know? you, I think you've been reading my email box for the past few months. <laughs> it's just full every day of people saying, how can you say these terrible things about Ryan Buell and ship coffee? And it, and it always ends up they never address anything that I address in the book. It's always, well, he's a great guy or he's a pleasant personality or he just comes across as sincere on TV. And they never, ever will get in a discussion with me about the my, the facts that I've uncovered and my investigation into paranormal state. And that's it. They're, you know, they're defending him as a television character, which is basically what he's become. He's he's no longer, you know, necessarily just the head of a paranormal group. And I, even I question that. We'll get into that a little bit later on. But uh, you know, when, it's the same thing as if we came on and, and started bashing the characters from Twilight. Mm-hmm. Well, well, the difference is that's a total fictionalized character. And one of the things that people really criticize me for. And, and I, and I tried to explain it in my book, and I, I don't know if I did a, an effective enough job, is I am not against paranormal reality programming. I have no arguments about it whatsoever. Ghost hunters, ghost adventurers, uh, you know, even the new shows with John Zaffis and the other shows that are coming out, I have no arguments about them because what they do is they just go out and they sit in a famous building and they have some scary encounters, and then they tell the owners at the end of the show, your place is haunted or we didn't uncover anything. And there's nothing harmful about that. But what Paranormal State did, which set it apart from all the other paranormal reality shows, is one, they said these are the worst cases that we, we ever get. Two, they claim that they helped people. And three, they focus on a lot of the show on demons and demonology and exorcisms, which the other shows until recently really tried to, uh, to uh, shy away. And that was what was really was my concern, is this idea that they're going out there and helping people. And in reality, when you read the book, you find out that they actually helped very few of their clients. Well, I, I mean, I know we're going to be focusing mostly on Paranormal State tonight, but I do want to take a step back to something that you said. When you were talking about these other paranormal reality shows, you said that they go to a famous location. Now, I remember when Ghost Hunters started, mm-hmm. uh, it was more about the individual private residences yeah. and, and helping the families. And I, I, th- I think, if I remember right, Lizzie Borden's might have been the first famous place that they actually investigated um, and then you know, and then they went to Waverly Hills, and they went to those places. But I mean, that was the first place that was kind of like a anybody could go to it at any point in time type of place. Before mm-hmm. you know, like you know, the prisons and things like that, you have to make an arranged visit. But now it seems like there's also a keen eye toward the business angle of it too. Where, all right, if you go do a residential haunt, and then there's no money to be made after the episode airs. Yeah, and also. In, in, in Ghost Hunter's defense, and again, I have nothing against the guys. I've never met them. Uh, you know, I've watched their show a few times, and and again, they don't claim to help people. In their defense, though, so what they stated was that after the first season, they couldn't do private residences because everybody was trying to uh, trick them. They were planting speakers in the wall and having people tap on walls and different things like that. Mm-hmm. And they had to go to the famous places to investigate uh, because they claimed that they couldn't get legitimate investigations. Now, to me, that would have been, made a great show if they walked into somebody's house and totally debunked the haunting as, well, you guys are staging this. There are speakers in the wall and 
there's somebody around the corner rapping, and there's somebody. They you did. Know, a, they did in one episode, though. Yeah, yeah. And if they had kept on doing that, to me, that would have been a really uh, interesting show. But like you said, now it's all become basically, let's go to someplace famous, and then we'll say it's haunted, and then six months later, lo and behold, there's a convention being held there, mm-hmm. or there's a big tour being set up for people to come and spend three hundred dollars a pop to go ghost hunting in. Well, and, and it's and it's become a college industry. I was going to say too, we kind of know the the ghost hunters guys. We're only you know half an hour from from where they live, and we've run into them a bunch of times, and we've worked on stuff, and you know we we've hung out. And I actually asked Jason one time about that why you know they they got away from the private residences, and the the other big problem was that as the show became so popular, became the number one show on Sci-Fi Network and had all these millions of viewers every week, it was really causing hell for the people who mm-hmm. were getting investigated. And they didn't really sign on for that necessarily. You know, they, they didn't understand at the time what a phenomenon was going to become and that there would be people camping out in front of their houses. And it became so hard to film around the location without revealing the location that it was just easier to go to a public place. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and somewhat I can understand that. Like I said, it's just as you know, and Paranormal State could have kept me from writing this book if, in the very beginning, they would just have put, you know, this is not an actual investigation. This is the way, you know, this is a, a docudrama or something like that. Not to use the word documentary or reality TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wouldn't have upset me. But when they sit there and they stood and they started to go, oh, this is how things have actually happened and. And if you read my book, you see that I analyze Ryan's book and where he says that uh, uh, there were very few uh, editing errors, and he claims he addresses all the editing errors in the in the, uh, uh, the TV series. But if you notice in my book, we point out that there's over 30 cases that they investigate that there are time issues. And when we talk about time issues, we're talking about when they're walking through a client's house and they're, and they're telling the audience it's 3 o'clock in the morning, it's dead time, and right over their shoulder is a wall clock that says that it's 11:30 at night or 10:15 or or something like that. You know that's not real. There's something going wrong there, and and that was one of the reasons that we really got motivated to write the book is to show the public that paranormal that the reality the paranormal state was presenting really wasn't what was really going on in their cases. Well, I read the book cover to cover, and I have to say that. At the beginning, I was kind of turned off a little bit by the fact that you get so intricate with those uh, details about the, the clothing, the time issues. Uh, you're very, very intricate in breaking down every episode with all these little inconsistencies and, and continuity errors. And it got to the point where almost I was like, okay, all right, now it really seems like you're nitpicking. But then it dawned on me about you know a third of the way into the book, and then you explain it. Uh, kind of in the first question that you address from Ryan's book toward the end of the book, uh, that if they have all these errors, if they have all these inconsistencies, uh, then it obviously leads to bigger questions. And is that what it was for you? The more that you saw all these little um, indications that they didn't really care about presenting things in the way that it happened, you started to throw away everything that was happening? Well, actually what happened was I was doing a blog at the time called and I still do it called on the eye and the paranormal. Mm-hmm. And I kind of take a kind of a uh, offbeat sort of look at the paranormal world. And a Paris celebrity was a reader of mine, and Kelly Ryan, which was the the first person to step forward to come out and say the paranormal state wasn't really what they pretend, presented themselves to be, 
contacted this Paris celebrity and started to share her story of her experiences uh, on the show. This person being a Paris celebrity, and I promise never to expose their name because it's total confidentiality, mm-hmm. they were concerned that if they came forward with this information, they would be blacklisted in the paranormal field because a lot of people think, oh, the paranormal field for para-celebrities is really big. In reality, it's on the small side. There's only a certain number of talent agencies that represent para-celebrities, and there's only a certain number of conventions that they can go to and speak and do their presentations on a yearly basis. And this person was afraid of being blacklisted because they didn't want their agent coming and saying, well, you're bashing my client, and and we're not going to invite you to uh, uh, this big convention this year because of that. So he sent her to me, and I interviewed her, and I, you know, she was sitting there telling me that everything that they presented in the episode was totally false, that one of their crew members runs across the window to act like a ghost and all these different things. And I kept interviewing her in emails and on the phone, trying to uh, trick her up in her story to see if she would start changing her story around. And she constantly gave me exactly the same story about what Paranormal State was doing. So I started to take a really close look at the the episodes that took place prior to her episode, and it's intriguing to point out that her episode, which was in season two, entitled "The Messenger." If you go by the DVD of Paranormal State today of season two, that episode is not on the DVD. They've they've kind of they deleted stricken that it from, stricken it from the uh, from the record. They stricken it from the record, and the only time that you will catch that DVD that episode is every so often they will play it on a rerun when they're rerunning on A and E. But if you buy the DVD today, if you bought it when it first came out, it was on there. But now they removed it. So I, you know, like I said, I investigated her, and her story kept coming time after time, and some of the things she was telling me. I was going back and looking at early episodes, like uh, in her episode, they planted a cold bottle of Budweiser in a bed to uh, act like it's a cold spot. And they had done this in an early episode called uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the Sensitive, and they did exactly the same thing in that episode. So it's like what she's telling me was just clicking on other things that they have done or I could figure out watching the earlier episode. So... It really started to intrigue me that every one of these episodes I looked at, there were issues. I couldn't hardly find one episode that there was not some kind of issue, something wrong someplace. And once it starts piling up, you can sit there and say, well, you know, we had four or five episodes that had some bad editing, and and we're sorry for that. But when you go through their entire uh, lifespan, and we in the book cover from season one to season five, and every single episode there's an issue, and I'm just not talking about one issue, folks. I'm talking about multiple issues. Something's telling you somewhere that something is not right. And so we just went on a full-fledged investigation of what I could do between the cases that I work and my co-writer when she was doing writing assignments. And we just went on a full-fledged two-year investigation. And, you know, it was just shocking what we were uncovering and what we even continue to uncover even up to today. Well, I watched the first episode of Paranormal State and was immediately turned off. Uh, And then I watched one other episode during the course of the run, and I guess now they're running out the final episodes. uh, Mm -hmm. So uh, the other episode that I watched was on uh, somewhat recently, 
uh, in which our show's content director, Christopher Balzano, was a, I guess, call-in guest on the show. They consulted him about the Puckwudgies. And uh, so those are the only two episodes I've ever seen. So I, wanna, I just want to throw out that disclaimer uh, right now, and I'll probably mispronounce people's names from the show because basically I don't care. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, we actually approached them about coming on our show when their show first started. And, uh, you know, we things, I started speaking with Topher, who, as you know, is not uh, exactly easy to deal with mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the time. And, uh, and, and it never ended up happening because of some issues, but I'm not going to get into all that. Uh, but I had my suspicions about PRS as a paranormal investigation group from the very beginning. Uh, maybe it's because uh, I didn't watch enough of the shows that maybe the backstory was told later on. But to me, it just seemed like it was uh, a fly-by-night group that had only been in existence for a short amount of time before they were handed a television pilot. Mm-hmm. Is, yeah, that, and is it, that pretty much true? Yeah, and that's very true. And in reality, if you read Ryan's book, you will see that he pursued many TV opportunities prior to this one coming to uh, reality. This just wasn't a situation where he was sitting at Penn State as a student running a student organization. And by the way, it is no longer a student organization at Penn State University. It is now only an off-campus national organization. There is no longer a student branch of it at all. but he was out there trying to get TV shows after TV shows, and nothing would click. And finally, he had an opportunity to do this. And uh, and, and and again, I don't want to sound like that. People say, "Well, you sound like you're jealous of, of, of Ryan." I have no jealousy towards Ryan. I have no dislike, dislike towards Ryan. Uh, you know, as a person, he's probably a great person. Chip Coffee's probably a great person. It's just the things that they got caught up in. And I think they became victims of the fame train, mm-hmm. and they also became victims of the reality that you run into with reality programming is that since there are so many different paranormal programs on there, you have to keep notching it up. You just can't go and say, oh, now we're going to go do investigation, and nothing happens, and you just can't you know, do the reps on the wall. You've got to you know, now do exorcisms, and you now have got to have demons, and you now have got to have really frightening experiences that cause people to go running down the hallway. And I think they got caught up into that because as you watch the seasons go, the claims that they were making just became more outlandish after more outlandish and more outlandish. Well, what bothered me is um, from the very beginning when they had filmed this pilot and there was some time, a great deal amount of time between the time the pilot was filmed and when the show was actually picked up. Mm-hmm. And I remember when the show was in its pilot form, and it was known as Paranormal U, I believe. Yes. And Ryan was going on certain other paranormal radio shows, uh, already promoting this product, and you know, already getting his name out there as being the next Paris celeb. And uh, you know, there was a lot of hype about this group and this show before it was actually even picked up as a series. So to me, it always didn't sit right. Uh, in the back of my mind, it seemed like it was just somebody that came together to try to use this as their in to become some sort of a television personality. And and even in the pilot, going back to season one, uh, with their, their pilot, they made errors in that episode. One error is that the, a young boy commits suicide, and they interview a gentleman who claims that he is the person that found the body in the woods. In reality... He wasn't the individual that found the body in the woods. It was a woman walking her dog, and they stumbled onto the body in the woods. 
And in reality, if you watch that episode, there was the beginning of the claims, because one of the things that we do in the book is at the end of every episode, we do paranormal claims, what family is claiming is taking place, and then we do uh, paranormal evidence, where what is the evidence that you present, and then we present the accuracy of the psychic involved in the episode that there is a psychic. The family was claiming that a demon was pursuing their young son, but in the episode, the demon shows no interest in the family, no interest in Ryan, no interest in the PRS crew outside of one person, and that was Adam Bly. Now, Adam Bly is an interesting character. He was the uh, faculty advisor to PRS when PRS was a student organization. He has, a, I believe, a master's degree or higher in psychology. He left PRS and Paranormal State after the pilot was filmed because he was concerned about the direction that the show would go in and he was also concerned about mixing the pagan beliefs with the Christian beliefs. Now, it's interesting that now Adam Bly is now back as the host of The Exorcist Files, which is done by the same production company that did what reality show? Paranormal State. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's really interesting that he left the show because he was concerned about the direction it was going in because of the production company. Now he's working for the same production company with his own paranormal reality show. Well, but, I mean, that's kind of what happens. Is <laughs> you, you get involved in it and you get your opportunity. I mean, that, that's basically what people are looking for. They're looking yeah. for their opportunity. Uh, I, I can't imagine that... Uh, you know, as Ryan's building himself up and, and trying to build his group up in the time between the pilot and the show, I don't I don't get the feeling, and I could be wrong, and I'm, I'd am i be more than willing to admit that I'm wrong if people can present me evidence otherwise, I don't get the feeling they were out there in the field going out, investigating residential haunts, helping people. Uh, my personal belief, and this is just me talking out of my rear end here, but I don't think they've ever done a case that wasn't filmed for the A&E network. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because Katrina, which is one of the mainstays on Paranormal State from season one all the way through season five, gave an interview on April the 1st of this year to a horror writer. It's posted up on the web. Now, the horror writer's name unfortunately slips my mind right now. It's a sign of getting old. And you know how many uh, private investigations paranormal PRS did after the show started to film? How many? Take a guess. I'd say zero. <laughs> yeah, well, you'd be right. <laughs> they have done no investigations in five years that cameras weren't rolling. Now, people may say, well, you know, they were busy on a filming schedule. They only spend two to three days on a location for a, a, a case when they're filming they only do a max of 20 cases per season. So at the most, that's two months out of the year that they're filming, leaving them 10 months out of the year that they could do investigations on their own. And they have done zero since the show started filming because she says in the interview that they hope one day to start doing private uh, investigations again. So this organization that has got... Uh, you know, so many severe cases, and we point this out in the book, that in reality, hardly any case that they ever investigated came from PRS or their case files. They would send out press releases uh, beating the bushes from uh, A&E and the producers, asking the public if they had any cases 
that would be interesting over the, uh, for their show, or they would actually reach out to various paranormal uh, investigation groups, seeing if they had some interesting cases. So even their intro was being less than honest, that these were the worst cases that came to PRS. Actually, they've got very few cases from inside PRS. Well, and I'll say this. I mean, we know people within the TAPS organization and some that are no longer with the group and some who are still. And one of the questions that I always ask is how active is TAPS? And while they're filming, you know, Jason Grant and Steve might not be that active out in the field as members of TAPS, but Steve was active out in the field as a member of New England Paranormal, and there are numerous other investigators who have never even made it to television as part of TAPS who are out conducting investigations every mm-hmm. weekend. So this is a, a body that is out there in the field all the time. Uh, whether or not Jason and Grant go along, well, you know, they did it for quite a while before the show started, so, you know, do they really need to keep going out there if they've got this network built up? But um, I, I just, I've never heard of anybody who had an investigation done by PRS prior to the show starting. And I still, like you, I'm still waiting to see that real documentation about all this work that Ryan Buell claims to have done with the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah, because that's a very intriguing thing because he keeps coming back and coming back. And and it's, it's, it's like uh, Alice in Wonderland when you deal with PRS. And I'm not, again, I don't want to sound like I'm attacking PRS and Ryan Buell, but it's like how Chip met coffee. How Chip met, I mean, how Ryan met Chip Coffee. Mm-hmm. And we now have five different versions of how Chip Coffee and Ryan Buell came together. And they each one are different from the other. In Ryan's book, he claims that he never met Chip Coffee until the day that they were filming the name episode, which is the, the first episode after the, the pilot. It wasn't the first episode filmed after the pilot, but it's the first episode presented after the pilot. And Ryan Buell claims in his book very clearly that he never met Chip Coffee until uh, somebody recommended him and then, uh, you know, he uh, turned it over to the producers and producers hired Chip to, to come to do the show. Now, that's one version. Second version is Dave Schrader claims that he introduced Chip Coffee to Ryan Buell. Third version is that uh, Chip Coffee got a call from somebody to go shoot Paranormal State, and, and he was connected to some of the producers, and he went up there and he shot the show. The fourth version is from the show itself, when Ryan Buell says over the air, and this is his own words, that I'm calling in reinforcements and I'm bringing in Chip Coffee, a psychic medium who's been a longtime contributor to PRS, well, that totally contradicts his first claim that he never heard of Chip Coffee until a day before they started to film. Now there's a fourth, there's a fifth version that's out there that's from Ryan Buell's own words once again from an interview he gave about three years ago, where he says that him and Chip were talking to each other for a year prior to the filming on the message boards at PRS. So you have five different versions, and if you go with the fifth version, and since we have so many versions, I think you're ethically entitled to go with the version that you want to go with. Mm -hmm. If they were exchanging emails and conversations back and forth, how much did Ryan tell Chip prior to the filming of the name about this personal demon that he had that Chip wouldn't possibly know to write that name down? 
So you see, it's, it's just it's just one confusing thing after another confusing In- thing when you're dealing with PRS. You're opening the can of worms uh, that uh, I think we need to open, but it's something that didn't sit right from with me from the beginning of, of Paranormal State. And um, I, I don't know, maybe I was wrong in what I said earlier that I only watched the first episode uh, and then I didn't watch any more until the Pukwudgie episode because I do remember the episode where Ryan says that this demon has been following him uh, and bothering him for years. And I don't know if that was the first episode or maybe I was flipping through the channels one night, but I remember seeing that. Uh, and basically changing the channels right after that, saying, I'm out. Because yeah, and, I, I knew at that point every other episode was going to involve this demon coming back to get him. And, and that's another famous episode because there's two major events that take place in that episode outside of Chip Coffee and the name incident. There's one scene that's really intriguing when they're at their uh, dead time, which is, you know, this this myth that... Ryan Buell created about being from 3 o'clock to 4 o'clock in the morning is the time that spirits are the most active. And in his book, he tries to backpedal and to say that, oh, I didn't create that myth about from 3 to 4 a.m. in the morning. It was really the producers. And you go watch the very early episodes of Paranormal State, and you would constantly hear Ryan use this reference of, well, 3 to 4 a.m. is the anti-hour, and this is the time that's opposite of the time of Christ's death, and this is when the spirits are most active. Well, if we accept that that is logical, that would tell me that spirits pay attention to clocks, because that means that the spirits would be active on the East Coast, while on the West Coast they're sitting there and going, well, it's midnight here, so we got to wait three hours before we even become active, and that's just totally, totally ludicrous. But there are two major events that really are really shake the foundation from the beginning with Paranormal State. One is there's a scene that takes place when they're doing the uh, the dead time meeting with uh, Ryan and Chip and the family sitting around the kitchen table. And Sergi says over the telephone, Ryan, the bathroom door is opening. And they show a shot of, the ba- of a door opening. Now, first, it's not a bathroom door because if you freeze frame the shot, and we rec- really highly suggest to people that when you read our book, watch the episode along with reading our book so you can see what we're telling you is really happening and we're not making it up. But there is a scene where the, the door opens and Sergio goes, Ryan, the bathroom door is opening. Well, now that might be proof that there's paranormal activity inside the house, but there's an issue. That scene is not from the name episode. That scene was filmed in an episode called The Dark Man, and that scene was spliced into the name, and they must have messed up the script because he calls it the bathroom door is opening, and it's clearly the basement door is opening. And it's entirely from an entirely different episode than the name episode. And then the third event that takes place is that they make this big to-do about a mass murder that takes place, and they really give you the impression that it took place at the home of the clients. In reality, it did not take place in Pennsylvania. It didn't even take place in eastern United States. It took place in the Dakotas. It didn't even take place within the, fa- the family's property. The, the murder victims are buried in the graveyard across the street from where the family lived, but they had absolutely no connection to the property. Now, Ryan, in his book, he says, well, you know, it's because how I asked a question concerning the uh, the murders 
that people got the misconceptions that the murders took place on the property. Again, Ryan has trouble with reality because if you watch the final few minutes of the name episode, you will hear Ryan referencing that the mass murder took place at the family home. Where he, in reality, he knew that that murder never took place there. You know, I can begrudge them a certain amount of, I'll call it creative license for the purpose of being on television. I will grant them that, you know, editing plays a factor. I will grant them that there's probably, even if it isn't quote-unquote scripted, as you believe that it is, there is somebody who is there, kind of a, a producer, a field producer would be there kind of nudging them along in a certain direction for what would make good television. I mean, it, it can't be helped. Whether or not whether or not they actually listen to that person or whether or not they're contractually obligated to listen to that person, I don't know. But there's probably somebody there from the television production angle who is who is saying, even if it's just a little, uh, you know, while they're sitting around having coffee during a break, saying, you know what would be really great is if that demon that always bothers Ryan was in this house. Wouldn't that be kind of cool? You know, and I'm not saying, like, that it's it's necessarily implanting it in their idea, like, this is what's going to happen in this episode, but they're putting those ideas into their heads. Well, one thing is a lot of people don't realize, and, and I'm glad you brought this point up. Uh, you know, I'm not against them filming, quote-unquote, stage scenes. And when I talk about that, I'm talking about, you know, when they come in to meet the family for the first time. Mm-hmm. You know, that's clearly a stage scene. You Usually know, they call them stand-ups. Yeah, yeah, they stand-ups. You know, the, you know the camera guy's already in there. And, you know, I'm not against that. I'm not against them doing the scene when they leave the family home. Where I get in trouble with the show is when I point out, I can point out that they actually film the leaving of the home the same time that they film coming into the home, and they're talking about events that if they're happening in real time, they would have no idea that these events would be taking place. But if you go back to Kelly Ryan's testimony and also some testimony that we present from a production person who was on the set of Schoolhouse Haunting, a field producer comes to the location two weeks prior to them actually arriving to do the shoot. And the field producer goes through the house, and they talk to the client, and they get the story from the client about what's taking place concerning the paranormal activities. Now, therefore, before Ryan ever steps in, he has a huge amount of knowledge about paranormal claims and paranormal activity and different things like that. And it's like they already know all these events, and they're planning it, and they're scripting their story, they're developing their story. Now, when Ryan says we don't shoot with a script, he's absolutely honest. They don't have a verbatim script they shoot with. What they shoot is what is called retroscripting. And retroscripting is kind of like if, if you're a fan of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Absolutely, yep, I was just oh, thinking the same thing. Oh, yeah, where they set up a scene, but they don't have a script. They have a basic plot outline, and then the actors kind and, of riff. Yeah, and, and that's what they do with the paranormal state. Now, people say, well, now how do you know this? And if you read our book, you, one thing you won't find in our book is we don't do personal attacks. We, we're not here to, you know, talk about people's private lives and personal business and who's sleeping with who and, and who's got, you know, shady financials and things like that. Our book is not focused on personal attacks. We interviewed people who were on the set 
we interviewed clients, we interviewed paracelebrities, we interviewed people that were even with PRS in the past and are currently still with PRS that came to us confidentially. Now, a lot of people say, oh, okay, you're using confidential sources and we can't trust them because they can say anything they want. What a lot of these people need to realize is that when you work on a reality show or any real TV production, you sign a confidentiality agreement, which basically says that while you're there on the set, you're not going to ever talk to anyone about the events that took place while you was on the set. If you do, you're going to be possibly taken to court and sued, and you're going to lose because you're violating the contract that you signed with the producers. That's one of the reasons why you never hear any scuttlebutt about Survivor. If you ever go on Survivor, you're going to sign a, uh, a confidentiality agreement that's over 50 pages long mm -hmm. that you never, ever can ever in your lifetime share with the, the public what happened while you was with Survivor. They sign the same basic agreement when you go on Paranormal State. So these people can't come out and talk about what they saw and what they did and what they heard publicly because if they do, they're going to get sued and they're going to get blacklisted, not only in the paranormal field but in the TV production field. So these people have to protect their livelihood. So we interview these people. And, and so when you read our book, our book is just not, you know, Internet rumors and just a rehash of Internet claims. This is stuff that we were actually told. This is stuff that you can actually see by watching the episodes and reading Ryan's book, which we encourage everybody to do because that's going to help you get a lot deeper insight to the things that we talk about in our book. Sure, and I didn't read it, and you know, and I was kind of lost in a lot of what you were talking about in your book because I was unfamiliar with the show uh, or the book. I just want to point out uh, a couple of quick things here. We are up against the clock, and we do have a caller on the line that I want to get to before we have to take a break for the news. And uh, later on in the second hour, we're hoping that Keith Johnson, who's in the chat room, who's been on Paranormal State, will join us and give us uh, at least his experiences of what went on with the program, and uh, Chris Balzano, who is our content director, he's in there as well. I want him to check in later on as well. But I'm getting asked in the chat room if somebody wrote a book claiming that TAPS had done the same thing with Ghost Hunters. Would we have them on? And the answer to that question is yes, absolutely. The difference being uh, if we did have somebody on from TAPS, we could speak with a little bit more of experience ourselves from knowing how they work and having had discussions with them. We have more access to the people from TAPS. We'd be able to get them on to rebut um, and there have been people who have bashed taps in the past that so we've had discussions about bringing on in the field. We've had the Who Forded guys on. We've had Patrick H.T. Doyle on. These are people who have questioned taps, and we question taps. I'll tell you right out, I haven't watched Ghost Hunters in the last few years because I worry that things are starting to look a little too, I'm not going to say fake, I'm going to say convenient. And that goes with all reality shows, not just paranormal reality shows, but anything that's quote-unquote reality. I, I, I've tended to worry about now so uh, we're not attacking i'm i'm not attacking paranormal state here as investigators i'm attacking them as what they're representing themselves as uh and it just so happens they're representing themselves as investigators so kind of talking circles around that one why don't we take this call real quick before we go up against the news good evening you're on spooky south coast with Kirby robinson how are you doing yes how are you doing tonight we are spooktacular oh <laughs> you know you fellows have a great show but let me let me tell you something 
the audience really wants to wants to hear about haunted stories. That's what we really like. You want to well because you know to keep the the program interesting, you want to you want to talk about what your what your audience wants to hear, which would be great. You know, you, you remember like that Amityville horror show you had on with uh, the DeFeo case. Yep. Mm-hmm. We like to hear things like that, you know. Even if you, if you, you know, Lizzie Borden, you know, a lot of haunted stories. And this, if you look in the archives, you know, you, you're going to find a lot of murders that have been committed around the South Coast that have never been, um, they've never been solved. Sure, no, and that's part of what we addressed last week when we were talking about the Bridgewater Triangle. And, and some of the uh, strange crime that comes out of that. I mean, we do that. We do that quite a bit. But we also feel that because our show is listened to not just by the local audience, but we're listened to nationally and internationally, that we do have a responsibility to present uh, many different topics within the paranormal field uh, for both casual observers of the paranormal and people who are hardcore into it. So, you know, we, we, we definitely do like to stick into the stories of, you know, telling the story of what happens, uh, but at the same time, you know, we we try to expand that and go beyond that. Because if we just came here and told kind of ghostly, spooky stories, every we, week, we'd people love would take that, it seriously. Though. Yeah, well, we'd love that because you know I'm going to tell you because this year it, it it gets a lot of you know you guys are very intelligent. Don't well, get me wrong. You, thank you. Tell my wife that, please. <laughs> well, we are very intelligent, but the thing is, it's the same boring talking. You know what I mean? And, and what happens is people are going to go to sleep. Well, we have our our show's content director, Chris Balzano, who helps us book the show, is on the air. Uh, he's on in the chat room listening right now. So you, you tell him what it is that you'd like to hear the most, and, and he'll make it happen. Well, if you could look up the archives and look at a lot of unsolved murders that have happened through the years, you could go as far back as 1920 if you want, or 1900, and look all these different murder cases up. And talk about that every week. You know, put a few on or maybe one on, whatever, like one an hour maybe. I'm telling you, I would tune in every week to listen to that because that's that's what we love to hear. The, the audience uh, eats that right up. You want a whodunit. Yeah, well, you know, mysteries, they're mysteries because nobody's there when, when, when the crime is committed. That's why they're mysteries. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them people that committed them, they're long gone now. But this is very interesting. If we could talk about, you know, look up the archives. I can't do it. You guys, you got the, you oh, know. Well, I'm sorry. we got to go for the news. <laughs> okay. We, we will do that. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. WBSM, 1420 AM, New Bedford, Fall River. BSM. Everything that happens now is happening now. What happened then? When? Just now. We're at now now. Go back to then. When? Now. Now? Now. I can't. Why? We missed it. When? Just now. Spooky South Coast is back. I see your Schwartz is as big as mine. I knew it. I'm surrounded by balls.
All right, welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, and science advisor, Matt Moniz. We'll get right back into the discussion in just a minute about Paranormal State and the new book, and uh, Paranormal Reality, Investigating Paranormal State, with the author Kirby Robinson. We're also hoping Keith Johnson from NEAR will join us uh, in this hour as well, and we're going to get Chris Balzano on the phone too, whether he likes it or not. Uh, but before we get back into it, I just have a few announcements that I want to make, things that uh, I want the listeners to be aware of. This comes from the Standard Times. Uh, Colonial history will come alive at the Lakeville Library at 1 p.m. on Wednesday, April 20th, when interpreters from South Coast Historical Association give a presentation on King Philip's War. David Jennings and Hallie Larkin will discuss the origins, tactics, and strategies of both sides of this conflict, as well as the devastating outcome of this tragic time in early American history. Material, culture, items, weapons, clothing, and maps of this time period will be on display to help the audience understand what it must have felt like to live in this cataclysmic time period. The public is invited. The eyewitness account of Mary Rowlandson, who is taken prisoner by the Native Americans, will also be examined. Although this war is largely forgotten in American history, certainly not here on Spooky South Coast, though, it was proportionally the most destructive conflict fought on North American soil, and much of it happened in southeastern New England, library officials said in a press release. This event is one of a series of free cultural presentations being held at the Lakeville Library, supported in part through grants from the Lakeville Arts Council, a local agency that is supported by the Massachusetts Cultural Council. So if you'd like any more information on this or any other events, just go to www.lakevillearts.com, and uh, you can also find out more about their upcoming art music festival as well on that website. But again, it's going to be Wednesday, April 20th at 1 p.m. at the Lakeville Library. Uh, you can hear David Jennings and Hallie Larkin talk about King Philip's War, uh, including having some materials, first, uh, first-hand materials from that time period too. So you don't want to miss that. Also, because apparently, now that I'm a biker, <laughs> <laughs> the first annual Zach Marshall Memorial Poker Run is coming up on May 22nd, rain or shine. All proceeds to benefit the Carabella Marshall Fund. Uh, registration is from 10 a.m. to 12 noon on May 22nd at the Boneyard Barbecue in Seekonk. The ride leaves promptly at 12 o'clock from the Boneyard, and it ends at the Attleboro Elks Lodge on South Main Street in Attleboro. The minimum donation is $20 per person to register. That includes your poker sheet, a T-shirt, bracelet, and food. Uh, also, all cars and bikes are welcome. It's not just bikes. It's any cars or bikes that wants to participate uh, at the party from 3 to 8 p.m. at the Attleboro Oaks Lodge. Live music by Who's Your Daddy, Raffles, Bikini, Bike Wash, and Bike Show, and all donations are appreciated. If you have any questions, you can email rideforzack at gmail.com. That's rideforzack, Z-A-C-K, at gmail.com. So mark the date, May 22nd, rain or shine, the first annual Zach Marshall Memorial Poker Run to benefit the Kirabella Marshall Fund. And if you want to know any information about this, and I went too fast, just shoot me an email, tim at spookysouthcoast.com, and I will pass on all the details. I don't know if I'll be riding in that run. I don't know. May 22nd, I'll be ready to get back on the swing of things. But Usually runs like that at very slow speed. Don't worry about it. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. Then I might have bike envy, too, from some of these awesome bikes that I know will be out there. So make sure you get out there. Even if you're not a rider and even if you're not going to take part in the poker run itself, make sure you check out the party, check out the bike show, and help support a great cause. All right, well, let's get back into the discussion about paranormal state whether or not it was a legitimate paranormal reality investigation show or whether it was stage and and something a little bit more fictionalized and our guest is kirby robinson his blog is eye on the paranormal it's eye on the paranormal.blogspot.com it's linked up on the front page of spooky if you want to check it out 
Kirby, before we get more into the paranormal state discussion, let's talk a little bit about yourself and, and your background, because uh, you actually do some of the work that PRS claims that they can do for these families. Yeah, I, when I was a little child, I grew up in the hills and hollers of southern Indiana, uh, and I used to see things that other people didn't see. And some of these, later I learned, were ghosts because they came to me as pleasant older people or younger people or uh, gentlemen in military uniforms. And, and I would talk to them, and my parents kind of thought I was a little bit odd because I, were, I was talking to people that wasn't there. But at the same time, in the evening hours, entities came to me that weren't so pleasant that later, as I grew up, I learned were demons. Now, as a child, I didn't know that these things were demons, and every time I would say to myself, you know, God, get away from me, these entities would step away. And so as I grew up, I learned that every time I felt like an evil presence coming around, if I said, you know, God, get away, or God, get these uh, spirits away, they would step away. And as I grew up, I kept seeing these people that other people wasn't seeing, and finally I just started to accept that, you know, maybe I did have a gift to see spirits and, and, and communicate with them and, and hear what they have to say. And at the same time, I accepted that I had a gift that I could see demons and, and deal with demons. And for several years, I tried to, uh, you know, not really do much with the gift outside of within my personal life. And my personal life and my professional life just wasn't happy. And I had a spiritual experience in the mid-1980s. And from that point on, I just knew that this is the kind of work that I need to be doing is helping people spiritually as well as helping people deal with demons and demonic hauntings and demonic presences within the homes. So for about the past 25 years, that's what I've been focusing on. And I don't go walking into a case expecting to find a demon. What I always try to tell my clients that when I take on one of their cases is I try to eliminate the probable before I start to embrace the improbable. Well, one thing that I've realized from reading your uh, Eye on the Paranormal blog is, uh, and if you're not comfortable speaking about this, uh, the, you know, just say so, but uh, it says on your blog that you are legally blind. Yes. And I'm wondering how that impacts your work in the paranormal field. Well, in the sense that I see spiritually, I see things spiritually. I sense. See, when I go in to do a, uh, an investigation, I don't take the standard equipment that most ghost hunters take. I don't take, uh, uh, you know, the, the meters and the readers and the thermal cams and different things like that. I do take a tape recorder in to try to get EVPs or to get a spirit captured on tape. Uh, but I hear things probably more than I see things, and I sense things probably more than I see things. But my legal blindness keeps me from driving and functioning like that, but I'm able to get around pretty pretty well uh, on other things. So I don't mind talking about that. I have what is called Stargates, which is an early onset of monacular degeneration. And one of the benefits of this, and it's kind of sad, one of the benefits of this form of uh, macular degeneration that I have is I actually see better in the dark than most people do. Hmm. So at nighttime, I, I'm very comfortable and I get around very well. If it would stay night 24 hours a day, I'd be a very happy individual. And just likely, you know, you do most of your investigations at night 
anyway. You don't have to do them all. I do a lot of investigations well, during the day because spirits don't become inactive during the day. I don't know where this myth came from that if you're hunting spirits or dealing with demons, you can only do it in the daytime or you can't do it in the daytime because they're just as active in the daytime as they are at night. It's just not as eerie to hunt them as it is in the nighttime hours. Well, I thought you had to do it during dead time. Oh, don't get me started on that. Well, well, because that means that means the spirits in England are just sitting there looking at the clock, going, "Okay, now (laughs) you know, you know, we got we got twenty three hours to come before we get active." Is it true that when they do that, when they're sitting around waiting for dead time, that when it does come, they all band together and sing "Old Lang Syne"? I, I believe they do. Okay. And and I think they forward the message to uh, the other time zones to get ready. So, but I do work as a demonologist, and and really when I say the word demonologist, people think, oh, that's something special. When you say that you're a demonologist, all that means is that you have an interest in the study of demons. Mm-hmm. That's all that means. And I think it's really starting to get overused, and that's one of the reasons why. My next book is going to be on the subject of demonology and the rite of exorcism because there are just so many myths out there. When I talk to people about dealing with demons and evil spirits and shadow people and different things like that, that is just really surprising, some of these myths. And you ask them, well, why do you say this and why do you believe this? And they go, oh, well, it's what we've been told or it's what the preacher says. And when you start dealing with a lot of ministers, you know, when they go through divinity school, they really don't spend that much time talking about the demon world. So they're just as much as uneducated in many ways uh, on the subjects of demons and exorcism, especially within the Protestant church, because in the Protestant church, you know, they, t- they teach the pastors, well, all you need to do is say, you know, in the name of Jesus Christ be gone, where within the Catholic faith and the Episcopal faith, you know, they have the right of exorcism. But... So I, I, I do demonology cases, I do, uh, but I don't go looking for demons. And, and that's the first thing you really got to understand, especially now with these teams that are calling themselves demon hunters that are out there. You don't go walking in the case expecting a demon. You don't embrace that the idea that a demon is there until the very end, until you eliminate every other possibility before you start latching on that there's a demon active. Or, or unless it's in the in the description of your television program. Or in the description of your television. And, 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 and which is one of the things that really infuriated me. Uh, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that Keith Johnson is, is in the chat room. You know, he's in one of the, one of the episodes, if you read the book, he was in the episode, uh, The Devil in Syracuse. Mm-hmm. Which I point out that if each, if the, the episodes had been done like The Devil in Syracuse episode, I wouldn't have wrote the book because I had very little objections about that I could find errors that I could find in that episode. The only thing that really bothered me on that episode is the issue when all the crosses supposedly flipped upside down just after the camera crew left the trailer. Well, we'll, we'll talk about all that with Keith uh, okay. a little bit later on in the hour. Uh, we do have a caller on the line that has a question for you, Kirby. Okay. Uh, one, one question I do want to ask before we get into that call is, uh, you know, I, I, it was a little bit self-serving of me to bring up uh, your, your medical condition because I wanted to make sure that it's out there that people don't, you know, not know and, and find out later because I want to give you a chance to explain how somebody with your condition was able to break down these scenes. Okay, you know and- how I, you know, okay, it's funny that you brought that up. How I did that, and that's one of the issues 
that uh, the, the Internet rumor mill is really churning is how can a person legally blind do this? Well, when you're legally blind, it means that you have what is called 200 to 20 vision or, or worse. What I would do is I would sit in front of a 65-inch uh, high-definition television. I'm coming over to your house for the okay. Super Bowl. Okay, and I would sit within six inches of it, and I would play the scenes, and I would focus on about one-quarter of the screen, looking at the background, looking at what was going on in the background, and listening over and over and over again to the audio because there's a lot of things going on in the background audio that we point out in the book that kind of exposes some uh, uh, deceptions going on within paranormal state. So I would sit within six inches of the car- within the, uh, the screen, and if I caught something, I would call another person into the room, and I would say, okay, watch this scene and tell me what you see. And it was a way that we could fact check to see, you know, where really catching what we thought we were catching and not just, you know, making up things just to criticize paranormal status. Absolutely, if it's in the book, we've not only backed it up once, we've backed it up twice. If we watch every episode of Paranormal State, we watch those between 50 and 75 times each and every episode. Wow. I'm, I'm, I kind of want to apologize. Okay, you had to do that. To, I mean, nobody should have to watch that many episodes of anything. Yeah, and another internet rumor, and I want to put it to rest, and I try to put it to rest Unless in, in one way, is about Lisa Maliga either not existing or she's the one that wrote the book, and I didn't write the book at all. And she posted a, a guest blog on the Iron Paranormal a couple weeks ago, uh, breaking down that that rumor was just an absolutely false rumor, because if that was true... I would have about three webs, about five websites, two blogs, uh, and had written seven books and, <laughs> on beauty products and, and uh, adult fiction. So she co-wrote the book along with me. Uh, so all these rumors out there that she doesn't exist or she wrote the book and I didn't write the book at all is just totally false. All right. Well, let's go to the call that we have on the line. Uh, good evening. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. You are on the air with Kirby Robinson. Hi, Mr. Robinson. How are you doing? Uh, fine. How are you this evening? I'm not doing too bad, sir. I just have one question for you. Um, in researching all of this and getting this book prepared and everything, um, what is the ultimate goal of putting this out there? Would you like something put on the television like as a disclaimer saying that this is a dramatization, that this isn't factual? Is I would like goal? to see. I would like to see that. Uh, I would like to see that added to Paranormal State. But what the ultimate goal of the, of the book is, there's actually on two sides. One is protection, protection of people who seek individuals out in the paranormal field. The other day I got a, uh, an email from a lady who had been in contact with a paranormal group within her community because she has a haunting and she was seeking help with that haunting. And she called this, well, and I'm not going to mention the name, a well-known paranormal group to come in and investigate. And basically the feedback she got from her, from the woman that was up in the paranormal group, is that, well, if we come to your home, we're looking to shoot a pilot for our own TV series, and we're hoping to get on the, the haunted uh, reality show. So if your case pans out, you're going to need to agree to be on the pilot or be on the haunted episode. And it's getting sold that in the paranormal community, to be successful, you've got to have a TV show. 
which is, is, is totally false. You know, you're, you're, this is not a business. You're here to help people. And so I don't want to see clients taken advantage of. And also, I don't want to see sincere people within the paranormal community get blinded by the idea that, oh, well, if these people here got a, a TV show, we've got to go out and do something outlandish to get our TV show or to get on The Haunted or to get on one of the new paranormal shows that are coming out from Science Fiction Channel. That's really the main, <coughs> excuse me, the main goal of our book is not so much to get something put on Paranormal State because after uh, the next seven episodes, this off the air and it goes into rerun land. Our main goal is the protection of people who are seeking help as well as protecting the integrity of the paranormal field. And, and let's face it, uh, you know, a lot of the information that Ryan presents on the show isn't always accurate. That, and, and, and that's true. Uh, you know, the, the, the dead time, the things that he says about the demonic possession. The way they uh, conduct exorcisms, you call them the question, too. Yeah, yeah, I call them question because in the I Am Six episode, if you watch the exorcism that takes place at the end, the young girl that goes through the exorcism, and I have witnessed exorcisms, I've performed exorcisms, I've been in, in, in places where people have been demonically possessed by one demon up to numerous demons, I never saw a person in the middle of an exorcism stop and change their clothes. And her clothes changes during the exorcism. Her hair, her hairstyle changes during the exorcism. Her makeup is redone in the middle of the exorcism. That's a great concern because that to me is telling me that that exorcism is not being conducted in the right way or was that really an exorcism in the first place? Or was that a staged exorcism? Because what we point out in the book is because we do have an onset source who informed us that Laura was obsessed with a movie called The Possession of Emily Rose. And I don't know if you ever saw that film. It's mm -hmm. a film that was out a few years ago uh, about a young girl who was demonically possessed, and it was based on an actual case. It wasn't the actual case. It was based on an actual case. And she was obsessed with uh, this movie and watched it over and over again. And she also sought to have a exorcism performed on her, not so much that she thought that she had demons, but that she felt that this would be a good therapy for her because there is a form of therapy that's out there concerning an exorcism where you don't exercise demons, you exercise psychological demons, you exercise psychological issues. Now, if that was the only issue with nexusism, then uh, maybe I could, you know, not get really upset. But when they bring her back in the next season and possession of return, when she enters the scene, the episode halfway through, she has a black eye. But as you watch that episode progress for the next 30 minutes, sometimes she has a black eye, sometimes she doesn't have a black eye, and then suddenly the black eye returns. Now, here's the biggest issue I have with the whole lore case. Basically, what Ryan did, if you accept the storyline that this girl was demonically possessed, basically Ryan's defense is, well, we worked with her while the cameras were rolling for, for uh, at one period for a year ago. As soon as we left, she came demonically possessed again, we didn't return to her home for over a year, so we left her to struggle for a year on her own before the cameras came back. Mm 
And then as soon as the time was up, even though this girl was still suffering, we're walking out the door with her cameras and we're not coming back. Now, that really poses a lot of spiritual and ethical issues if you accept the storyline that she was actually demonically possessed. And this girl, in some ways, believes that she was possessed because we actually post letters from PRS's web board written from lore posted on the board talking about the demonic activity from the time that PRS was originally there and after PRS was there the second time. And if you go by that storyline that she's still possessed, that really raises an ethical issue that you walk away from a client just because your camera time is up and it's time to move on to do another TV show. That's not ethical. If I take a case, I take that case, and I stay there until that client is free of demonic activity, whether it takes three days, six days, six weeks, or six months. I'm part of that case until it's done. But even so, even if you are on a schedule of filming and you have to go on to the next filming or the next episode or the next case, which is probably what happens. I mean, there's a very tight shooting schedule, I'm sure, so that they can make sure they have everything edited and ready to go for the for the next season. But even if you're in that position, as Ryan and the PRS team might be, they supposedly have all these experts at their disposal. Mm-hmm. All these, uh, you know, they work with psychologists, they work with demonologists, they work with you know, people within the church, they work with Lorraine Warren. All these people could have been there to give this person support. Yeah, and and, and, the, the, and they were left. And this doesn't just lore. If you go back and look at our book, they did the same thing to Kelly Ryan. You know, they came to her home. They promised her all kinds of help. They totally distorted the story, and they tried to force this story on her that she had been sexually molested by her grandfather when she was a little child. And it seems like after that, if you watch it, it seems like they try to come back to that storyline fairly often that there's some entity in the house that has to do with molestations from a childhood. But it's just not Kelly Ryan. It's also the the family that was featured in the, the Glove episode, which is from season two. They did not return to that family until season five, and that family lives in the state of Pennsylvania, which PRS is based in. So you're telling me that in almost three years you could not get in a car and drive a few hundred miles in the state of Pennsylvania and help that family without the camera rolling. There's really severe ethical issues there that PRS never addresses. And what's really interesting is since this book has came out, PRS has totally stayed numb about this, uh, this book totally. They have not made one comment whatsoever concerning this book. And when we were writing this book, we repeatedly went to A&E and the producers of the show because one of the things that we wanted to include in the book is a statement from the producers where they would state 100% that the psychics featured on the show was never shared any information prior to their walkthrough. We sent numerous emails. We sent, uh, We made numerous phone calls. We made numerous attempts to uh, contact these people, both in New York and in Los Angeles, and nobody would go on record stating that psychics were never given information prior to their walkthrough. Well, and, and I want to get into into some of the responses that you got from the psychics and the people who were in the community. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I did send out a message to Chip Coffee 
mm-hmm. to see if he wanted to come on and and debate you about any of the stuff that he was involved in. Uh, but in, again, in the interest of full disclosure, I did not send the message until last night, uh, and I, I sent word out through the channels that I have to different people that you uh, mentioned in the book to see if any of them wanted to join us. Again, it was yesterday, so uh, they, they probably didn't have time to respond even if they wanted to. Uh, and that's actually, I'm going to pin that on Chris Balzano for not <laughs> letting me know that you were on the, <laughs> this week until yesterday morning. So, but Because what I've done is, and I've made this public challenge on uh, other shows, and to that kind lady that was on uh, before the break talking about this, you know, she would like to hear more about ghost hunt, uh, you know, hauntings and unsolved murders and different things like that. I hope people don't get the idea that I get great pleasure from doing this. I would much rather be working a case right now sure. than dealing with this. But I feel like, well, since nobody else in the paranormal community is going to do this, uh, then it's it, it's up to somebody that's got to do it, and, it, and it's going to fall down to me. Because, folks, this is not fun. I get You wouldn't believe the amount of hate mail that I've gotten since this book has come out. Which means that you're going to have people question your work. Yeah. You know, and, and without any basis of it, just saying, well, you know, he attacked my Ryan. So. And, and, and the death threats, too. Which is, is, is sad that because I wrote a book about a paranormal reality show, I have people threatening my life, and we've had to send a few over yeah. to the, the, the police department because some of them were very explicit. You know, I I would much rather be talking about demonology. I'd much rather be talking about demons. I would much rather, uh, you know, be on a case than dealing with this. But since nobody else would do it, I've got to do it. And plus, I've got to, you know, I, I've got a co-writer that put her time and effort into this, so I've got to make sure that it's selling. And luckily, the book is selling on Amazon this afternoon. We were one and two in our categories on Amazon, which is really good for, a, 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 you know, a book of this nature to be ranked like that on Amazon. We were number one on Kindle on uh, uh, parapsychology, and we were number two on Kindle on uh, TV guides and uh, and uh, show discussions. So in in in, uh, in just desserts, number three was Paranormal State: My Journey into the Unknown. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm, I'm just so, kidding. No, no, it probably, yeah, it's, it's probably, it's, it's probably up there. But we've, ma- and I've made this challenge to Paranormal State, or PRS, as I should call them. If somebody from PRS would sit down with our book, and go through our book, from page one to the very end of our book, and show us where we're wrong, show us if, if, where we're wrong, where, you know, th- this didn't happen the way we said it did, and, and these people are wrong in what they say, if they would do that, I would take the book off the market. There you go. Because I have enough assuredness that what this book is, this book is truthful. And with the chip coffee situation, we insert in the very beginning of the book a chapter called the chip coffee situation. And again, I like chip. Uh, you know, I you know I you know I, I may disagree with some of the things that he does, but I like chip coffee. And if chip coffee comes onto the set, and somebody else plant something or somebody else causes something to happen and he reacts to it and he doesn't know that that's been planned, you can't blame Chip Conker for that. Mm-hmm. And there are instances in that show that we're finding out that Chip Conker was brought in and somebody caused something to shake and Chip reacted to it. That's not Chip's fault. That's, that's the, the show's fault because Chip Conker 
was nothing more than a contract player with the show. He was never a producer. Ryan was always a producer. See, this is another thing that they try to say is, oh, well, Ryan Buell wasn't ever a producer on the show. If you watch the credits, and we give his credit on each and every episode throughout the run of the show, outside of a handful of episodes, he was either a consulting producer, a co-executive producer, or executive producer for that show. So he had hands-on role. So, but with Chip Coffee, we have a section in there where, you know, we say that if Chip Coffee didn't know this was going to happen, you can't blame him. And also, we're not here to blame the clergy. And I don't want to make it sound like that I'm bashing the clergy. If you're looking for a clergy to be bashed in the book, you're going to be unhappy because these guys, Father Bob and, and the other uh, priests, they were just brought in to do what they're supposed to be doing as men of God. So I can't criticize that, and I'm not going to criticize that because they're men of God, and they felt that they were doing what was needed to be done. Well, uh, we do have a caller on the line here before we take a break. Okay. Uh, so let's take this call quickly. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you doing? Hello, it's Keith. Oh, hey, Keith. Hey, how are you doing? Right, I guess we don't have to take a break then. <laughs> we were going to take a break to get you on the phone. Oh, okay. Well, I'm here. Well, so Keith, Kirby, Kirby, Keith. Hi, how are you doing? Hi. How are you doing, Kirby? Nice uh, to meet pretty you. Pretty good. Now, uh, Kirby, uh, what, if it's all right with Keith, I would just say if you have any questions for him, I, I would let you ask him. Well, I see. I bet you see now this puts me in a bad situation because I don't want to put him in a situation where he he's going to look bad. Mm-hmm. And like I said, he was on basically you were on what two episodes of yes. the, of the series. You was on the Devil, Devil in Syracuse, Syracuse and the Schoolhouse episode. And the Schoolhouse episode. Now the Devil in Syracuse, like I said in the book, if everything had been done, if all the episodes had been done like they did it in the Schoolhouse ep- in the uh, the Devil in Syracuse episode, I wouldn't have wrote the book mm-hmm. because you portrayed it the way it was supposed to be portrayed. You did what you're supposed to do. Your wife did what she's supposed to do. Uh, so I have no arguments about that. Now, your role, again, on the schoolhouse haunting, what you was called in to do, you did, mm-hmm. uh, which was the, the call in to do a house blessing on uh, Mrs. Sil- Miss Sylvia's house. Now, if you read our book, we show where Ryan had major issues with uh, the story of the schoolhouse haunting, you know, because we have somebody that was on the set that actually shows that what Ryan claimed was going on uh, really didn't go on. For example, he claimed that it was Miss Sylvia that approached the local press to do a uh, an interview concerning the paranormal state being there at her home to film. And in reality, and we even have the reporter an email from the reporter saying, it wasn't Sylvia that contacted us. It was A&E and PRS that contacted us to do the, do the story. Right. And I, I know it wasn't uh, Miss Sylvia that uh, contacted them. I, I wasn't aware that they had even been contacted. So I know it wasn't Shannon that had done that at the mm-hmm. time. But my personal involvement with, I'll tell you how I became involved. Sandra, my wife, and I became involved in the Devil in Syracuse. Um, but most people don't know that that was actually our case to begin with. You know, Tina and uh, husband Ray contacted us, and they were going through some problems. Now, Ryan, um, of course, was looking for cases very much, and I was friends with Ryan at the time, and uh, 
he was looking for cases to start his new show, and we figured, gee, they're more in the area than we are. Maybe we should uh, recommend uh, Ryan in his case, and that's how Ryan became involved. And, um, of course, it was when uh, Father Andrew Calder, and, you know, God bless him, all the issues, he's health issues he's dealing with lately, uh, he became ill and had to drop out. So Sandra and I were kind of called in an emergency, and so we came in and just did what we had to do. We were there that, that one night. So, um, and like you said, what you see is, is what actually happened there, and it was not rehearsed or anything. We just came in and did what we had to do. I personally didn't see any upside-down crosses while I was there, so, you know, I'm not sure when that happened. But That, uh, that was the first night that the team stayed at the tra- trailer. Okay. That was uh, two nights before you were called in. All right. Okay. Uh, they, they weren't upside-down when I was there anyway, but... Uh, <laughs> you would have noticed that, I think. <laughs> yes, I, I definitely would have noticed that. I definitely would have noticed that, and, um, you know, it was... Uh, Kind of a, a very dangerous. It was very. It went very quickly, but that moment it was a very dangerous situation where we performed a deliverance over um, Tina's husband, and uh, because he was a, a big, big guy, and uh, if he freaked out, we um, would have been in trouble, obviously. So that's why at one point I asked, you know, Sandra and I were praying over him. Ryan had his hand on him, and uh, I uh, looked up at Chip and I said, uh, Chip, I need you to please lay hands on. Uh, on our brother, so because so we could have as much positive spiritual energy going on as, as possible at that moment, and uh, thankfully no one was hurt or injured. Uh, but of course, there was a um, a good conversation that we had. I mean, Chip and Sandra and I were in in the van. We were discussing the case. A lot of good issues were brought up, and it was filmed. But of course, you know, for continuity's sake, I guess for the time limit, they couldn't have that on the episode. But um, the thing is that recently that uh, an episode was aired where Ryan was saying, um, you know, he was recounting my first demonic experience, and they they showed that scene, but they had uh, cut Sandra and I out of it. You know, I, I don't well, know that's, if that was... That's an interesting question that I want to I wanna ask Kirby uh, a little bit later on about the direction of the show. Uh, but now, I, Kirby, you mentioned this a little bit at the beginning of the call when I said that, you know, you could ask Keith any questions you might have. And I think fans of the show and regular listeners of the show know that, of our show, I mean, know that uh, we have nothing but the utmost respect for Keith Johnson. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's actually one of my mentors in the field. And I know that, uh, you know, Matt Moniz is always proud to work alongside of him. And, and he's somebody whose integrity I would, I would never question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that if he felt like something was fishy in the episode, he wouldn't come on the show and bash, and I don't mean to speak for you, Keith, but you wouldn't come on and bash ryan or the producers or any of that but you would just choose to abstain from the discussion so just the fact that you're willing to discuss your experiences says to me that you believe everything was on the up and up you know and i it's not my intent to bash them at all now it's just the last time that was showed it was a it was done in flashback form where ryan says my first demonic experience and uh it shows that scene from the devil in syracuse but um it's kind of choppy editing and uh Ryan comes out, and suddenly they show Ryan. He's right out, uh, the um, victim who's going under oppression. And, uh, you know, Sandra and I were intentionally edited out from that. Now, I don't know if that was um, because of, you know, time constraints or whatever the reason for that was. But um, it was just a little surprising to see it uh, recounted like that. But um, Well, didn't he say his first amount of experiences happened before the show, that yeah. this, there was a demon following him around? 
Yes, and I'm not sure exactly if he said my first demonic okay. encounter or my first demonic experience, but it was my first demonic something. I, I didn't even see the episode. I was told about it later. Well, he repeatedly makes this claim, and uh, in the re- in the article that we uncovered where he offers this fifth version of the story about how he met Tiff Coffee, he talks about this case that he worked for the Catholic Church where he almost died and two or three other people connected to the case almost died, and yet we never get any facts concerning what kind of case this was. And we have a PRS insider that was there the first day PRS ever came into existence that said that the only case that they ever worked for the church was they were asked to document some paranormal activity inside a house. And that was their extent of working with the Catholic Church on cases. Uh, because one of the things is that why would a uh, the Catholic Church reach out to a group that has numerous pagans within their organization and taking very active roles in the investigation? Uh, the Catholic Church, as liberal as they, they become, are not so liberal that they would be bringing in pagans to do investigations uh, for the church and reporting back for the church. So what we document that they that you know this this claim that Ryan had these really hairy demonic cases uh, are actually not true. And we also point out in the I am six episode where he makes about thirty misstatements about a demonic activity uh, concerning the, the lore case that if he'd had any experience whatsoever, involvement with demons and the rite of exorcism, he wouldn't make about 30 of these mistakes that he made in the IM6 episode. But his story, Ryan has a very habit of changing stories as as his career goes on, we've discovered. Well, Keith, I'll ask you one more question, and then we'll let you go before we get into what will probably be some bashing. So I don't, I don't want to have you <laughs> yeah, on the sure. phone for that yeah. and risk having you lumped in with it. But uh, I will ask you, uh, as a seasoned paranormal investigator who has been doing this long before anybody else that has a television show. I'll exclude Lorraine Warren from that uh, part of the discussion, but anybody else that is involved in paranormal reality TV, you you were involved in this long before them, and I'm I'm not trying to to date you at all. (laughs) Uh, But uh, you've been involved in the field. You've been involved with both Ghost Hunters and Paranormal State for a couple of episodes. What is your feeling that these paranormal reality shows do for the field that you've dedicated so much of your life to? I think they really bring awareness and they bring confusion as well. Um, <laughs> I, I think that uh, people see them and they figure this is the lore of the land, this is how it happens. They don't see the research that, that goes into it, they don't see the preparation that goes into it, and I know these people are under a lot of pressure, a great deal of pressure to turn out a show every um you know, a couple of weeks for that one episode. So I think it, it's kind of, um, I think it's going the other way now where it's making people desensitized and people think, you know, you've got all these new demonologists coming up and, and they're, they're kids and they, they think they're going to go in and they're, they're going to just uh, take on the demonic and uh, everything's going to be hunky-dory and they're going to have a real dramatic episode. That's, that's not the way it happens in real life. I mean, we all know that. It's, it's, it's very dangerous if people think they can just, do this, and I think sometimes these television shows show it without the respect and danger that is involved. Good, that's a very good point. And very good. 
And Keith, we want to say before we let you go that if people want to see some real paranormal television, they can just watch episodes of Ghosts Are Near. Well, thank you. God bless you, Tim, and we hope you make a return visit very soon. Oh, and likewise for you and to come back should, to Spooky Studio. And people sure. should buy his book, Paranormal Realities. Absolutely. Thank and, you very much. And not much. just because Kirby's going to owe you some royalties for using part of the title <laughs> for his book. Right. Thanks so well, much. Well, Keith. my book went through so many because I wanted to use Paranormal Lies and... And the lawyer says, well, you really shouldn't do that. Yeah, that's and a little, want, little slander. And then I want to do paranormal deception, and they say, oh, you really shouldn't do that. So my co-author says, well, you know, why not paranormal reality since it's about paranormal reality TV and just drop the TV. So that's where my paranormal reality came into existence. And Keith says paranormal realities. Realities. And realities, yes, an too. Paranormal realities, too. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks so much, Keith. We'll talk to you, and we'll have you on soon. Okay, God bless, guys. You as well. Bye-bye. It's Keith Johnson. Again, nearparanormal.com is his website. And Kirby Robinson is our guest. His website is ionetheparanormal.blogspot.com. And you can pick up his book, as you mentioned, Paranormal Realities, Paranormal Reality, sorry, Investigating Paranormal State. And Keith made uh, an interesting point about the change of the direction of some of the episodes. And you mentioned it in the book too, Kirby. It seems like things have gone away from being about PRS and about being... Uh, the team effort, and it, it seems to have become the Ryan Buell show. Yeah, pro- really you saw that transition. One, two, and season one, two, and three, it was about PRS and in some ways PRS and Chip Coffee. And because and Chip Coffee really was, I think, the person that is really responsible for the success of Paranormal State because he is a pleasant individual and he does have that grand- grandfatherly sort of quality about himself. But in season four, Chip was only featured in two episodes, and he left the show. And if you ever ask Chip Coffee why he left the show, he'll simply say it's for, for professional as well as personal reasons, so we have to respect that. But after Chip left, going through season four to season five, it just seemed like it suddenly became the Ryan Buell show and the Ryan Buell investigations and, and less about PRS and really less focused on the families. And uh, I believe your, your buddy, Chris, mm-hmm. was uh, involved in the one where the family had those little demons inside the home, and uh, at the end of the episode they promised that the demons that they would plant strawberries Works every in the, time. Except in the never. backyard, and, and they told the demons, if we plant these strawberries, please leave the family alone. And two weeks later, uh, lo and behold, the demons return, and the case is still open. Uh, it, it seemed like even at that point that Ryan was even changing his attitude towards uh, uh, demons and demonic entities and evil spirits, uh, less confrontational, less Christian-oriented, uh, and more like coexistence because there's even an episode where they were dealing with uh, inc- incubuses, which is demonic entities that ha- can have sex. Mm-hmm. And basically at the end of the episode, he said, well, you know, these demons aren't really harming the people, so we're really not going to, uh, to get rid of them and just tell your guests to kind of enjoy it, which how could a person sit there and say, oh, cozy up to a demon? So... It even seemed like his attitudes towards demons was even changing. And, and of course, uh, Chris is in the chat room saying, and he mentioned it on the program, too, that uh, he didn't really tell them to plant the strawberry. Well, well I, mean, I, I mean, I would never, ever 
tell a client to bargain with a demon. Yeah. Uh, and one strawberry plant is going to keep a demon happy. But it just seems like even in season four, it became less about investigations. There's an episode in season four called uh, Darkness Falls, where they go to Moundsville, uh, Virginia, where they investigate the, the famous prison there. And uh, now that episode, you would think, oh, this is a perfect episode, because Ryan Buell was producer, and Chad, his sidekick, uh, was director for that episode. So you would think that here's an episode that there absolutely shouldn't be any issues with. And lo and behold, there's issue after issue. One of the biggest, one of the big issues concerning that episode is the famous photograph that a, a woman took of a shadow person in the uh, walkway of the prison. And Taps had been to the prison, and they basically debunked that photograph. Well, Chip or Ryan brings up the fact that he doesn't think that the, the photograph should be debunked, and they should go out and find uh, photo experts that will back up that their claims that the photograph is real, which is okay. It's a scientific investigation. Go out there and find some people that you know are open-minded. Well, what they do is they bring a person from Chad's group, American Ghost Hunters, in to back up that the photograph is legitimate, and they never indicate to the audience that this is Chad's ghost hunting group, American Ghost Hunters. Then suddenly there's a gentleman by the name of Frank, and he's brought in as a forensic, a forensic pho- photograph expert. We're never, ever told what is his credentials, what is his training, if you watch the end credits, you find out that there's never any credit to this Frank. The only Frank that's given any end credit is a gentleman by the name of Frank who was a camera guy for the show. And Paranormal State had a bad habit of when they wanted an expert, they would just pull somebody from their crew, stick him in front of the camera, and pretend that he was an expert. Because if they were real experts, they'd already be out there trying to get themselves booked into conferences. and Yeah, and, and they would want some credits, as, you know, give me a credit at the end of the show. And they even did this in an episode in Georgia called uh, Night Terrors, where a young girl was supposedly being terrorized by some uh, demonic entity at night. And at the end of the episode, Ryan says, well, we were so concerned about the, the mental health of this young lady, we set her up with a psychologist. And you see her sitting down talking to this woman. But if you start looking at the office that she's sitting in, it doesn't look like an office. It looks like that they just threw together some furniture and even brought in some kitchen chairs. And in actuality, we were told that the woman that was supposed to be a psychologist was a member of the crew and that the room that the office that they were in was a room in the house that they just threw together to look like a psychologist's office. Hmm. Well, i got to tell you, Kirby, we are just about out of time here on the show. You've brought up plenty of reasons for people to question uh, Paranormal State, and the book is called Paranormal Reality, Investigating Paranormal State. You can download it uh, for your Nook, for your Kindle. You can get it on uh, iotheparanormal.blogspot.com. Is Kirby's website for more information. Thank you for joining us, Kirby. Thank you for keeping uh, an eye on the paranormal, and uh, hopefully you can join us again sometime in the future. Oh, I'll, I'll be happy to. All right, and thank- you guys have a great night. Thanks, you too. And thank you very much. And the best way to sum it all up is, as Lara put in the chat room, just don't believe everything you see on TV. Only believe what you hear 
on Spooky South Coast. Uh, and until next week, when we come back with the big return of Rick Hayes, he'll be here. He'll be taking calls. He'll be giving readings. I cannot wait for, for Rick to come back on the show. It's been a while since we talked to him. So until then, for Chris Balzano, for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen.